lives and priorities and uh, eternities around the corner, and we often talk as a church or friends just about um, sometimes the dearth of seeing folks locally come to faith, but that's, that's not true all over the world. The folks are coming to faith, and you get to be a part of it through the giving to them, so we're thrilled, thrilled, thrilled with Makers and Means. So we're going to shift gears, head to the message this morning. I want to start by talking about a guy whose name you may or may not know, uh, William Cooper. If you look at it, it looks like Cowper, but this is the old English spelling, C-O-W-P-E-R. He's known as a great hymn writer. Uh, We sing one of his songs, which I'll mention in a minute. He grew up in England in the 1700s. And he's famous not only because of his hymns, he was profoundly gifted, but because of the depth, the longevity, and the recurring episodes of life-draining, soul-killing depression. He was uh, committed to an insane asylum in his youth where he attempted to take his life multiple times. One of the physicians there gave him a Bible. He read it. He came to faith in Christ. Got out of the hospital a little later. He became a neighbor to John Newton. And actually, the rest of his life was connected to John Newton. They lived uh, sort of backyards to each other for some time. He and his mother lived with John Newton in his household for an extended period of time. And you know, some of those stories that, so my life is a wreck, I come to faith, and then it's all butterflies and uh, green lights and blue skies. But what Cooper found was his depression didn't go away after he'd become a Christian. And he struggled with it as mightily after faith as he had before. And he and Newton combined uh, some of their talents, some of their passions. They wanted to produce a new group of hymns that the church would sing. And England was uh, sort of an interesting place. The established church there, the Anglican church, was generally spiritually dead People like Newton were called enthusiasts or enthusiastic, and that was a slam. They were evangelicals. They believed people needed to hear the gospel, come to faith, saving faith in Christ. They were, they were thought to be oddballs. So Newton and Cooper wanted to write cooperatively some new hymns. And so the only hymnal is what came out of that cooperative effort. And the only hymnal is probably famous because that's where Amazing Grace, John Newton's famous hymn, first appeared in print. Well, Cooper was a significant part of that work as well. One of his songs is, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. We sing that every year at a Good Friday service. Cooper's challenges with depression continued even as he wrote hymns. And listen to the opening two stanzas of his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. He says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. That thought that the storm is rolling in and I dread it. And he says, oh, what you find is through the midst of the storm is God's blessings are showered on you afresh. That's introduction to the message we'll be in this morning. We're going to be back in the Psalms this morning and really through this semester. Um, we, we did 15 Psalms in a series last year. 
out of the book of Psalms and what, what's called book one. And if you remember, we said that the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, is broken down into five separate books. And it's thought that as the temple worship was going on in Israel, that they wanted to identify the songs of worship in the temple with the books of Moses. So there's five books of Moses and there's five books within those 150 psalms of songs. So that would have all been sung in the temple setting. Uh, we did 15 last year. I hope to do 15 this semester out of book two. So book one was Psalms 1 through 41. Book two is Psalms 42 through 72. I said last time, and I'll say again, almost certainly I will not teach some of the songs that you would love to hear. And I will teach some songs that you probably don't really care about, don't have much affection for. And the method in the madness is this. Uh, I want to cover as much of the breadth of the themes and the experiences, life experiences that you find in the Psalms as possible. And there's lots of Psalms that repeat same or very similar themes. So we want to minimize the repetition we want to cover as much of the breadth as we can. I'd also say this. Many of the psalms have been taught here in the past. So if you said, gosh, I'd like to hear something on a particular psalm, you can go to the church website. You can do a search under Scripture reference, and it'll pull up ones that have already been taught. So if a favorite isn't covered, perhaps it has been in the past. Uh, the book of Psalms was not only, it was Israel's hymn book, right? So when they went up, you've got various groups of psalms, and we say, well, these are psalms of ascent. This is when they were going up to the temple. Or you've got psalms that cover one theme or another. So all of life is covered. And the book of Psalms for many people is their favorite book in the Bible. And I think that's because it takes theology and it takes uh, life and it really puts it down on low shelves where any of us can get it because it so often is treating with what life feels like, what it looks like. And so we can relate. So you read a psalm and you say, I can relate to that. I think it's for that reason that for many of us, it is a favorite. Uh, like all Scripture, too, we want to say this. We're meant to see Christ in the psalms. And, you know, the Sunday school thing is what's the answer to every question? It's Jesus. And, you know, it becomes trite. But truly, Jesus said all the Scriptures were written about Him. And so when we go through Psalms, there are some that you say that's written specifically about Jesus. Psalm 2 is about Jesus. Psalm 110 is about Jesus. But that's actually true of all the Psalms. So one of the things we want to make sure is either personally or here on a Sunday morning, what does that tell us about Christ? Where is Christ in that Psalm? We want to connect personally with the Lord through that as well. Uh, the series title is Like a Tree, and that came from Psalm 1. And way back a year ago, we said that Psalm 1 is the introdu introduction to the whole book of Psalms. And really, it's painting this portrait of the ideal person, we can say. And what you see is it it's very short, easy to memorize. It starts with negatives. It says that the ideal man, and, and by the way, this is where this goes. If you say this is the ideal man, this is the epitome of Christ. We said when we become like the man of Psalm 1, we're becoming more fully like Christ. That transformation process is occurring. It started with these negatives. It says that the godly man, the blessed, the happy man, he doesn't do some things. And he doesn't walk in the way of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Guys, this is a big deal for us. This is who are you taking your cues from? 
Well, the godly man from Psalm 1, he's refusing the siren songs and all the temptations and all the invitations of the world on the front end. And instead it says he's like a tree planted by waters because he's meditating on God's Word. So the life of the soul of the godly man is someone who's drawing their soul's nutrition, their soul's life and vitality from God's Word. And then he says that person is like that tree that's planted by water. His leaves are always green and he's always bearing fruit. Well, that's what we want to be. That was the introduction to the Psalms, and we want to continue that thought as we work through the Psalms this morning. So let me ask you that along this line. It's just, I don't know, it's just a thought, it's just a question, it just came to me. Have you made a plan to meet with the Lord every morning this year in Scripture, the water of life and prayer? We talk about it all the time, and I probably won't ever stop. So, have we made a plan to meet with the Lord? We were talking in our home group last week, I hope you're in a home group. If you put us in the stream of the history of the world, friends, there's never remotely been a time since the Industrial Revolution forward to our day that the absolute pinnacle of this, there's never been a time in the history of the world in which you are more frontally confronted and from the sides with the way of the wicked, the path of the sinners, and the seat of the scoffer. We are inundated in communication from people we don't know and can't see and will never know, and they're influencing us. If we don't have a plan to say no to the message of the world and instead drink up the life-giving waters of God's Word, we are sunk from the start. There's no chance to be the godly man to grow in Christ-like faithfulness if we're not really, really intentional about this. So do you have a plan? And if you don't, if this isn't already your habit, don't think of it as climbing a mountain. Think of it as taking one step. You could start with 10 minutes on a morning. I read a verse in the Bible and I prayed. That would be a start. That'd be a step. And then you can take another step the next day. And step after step, you'll get there. But if we don't do this, guys, we're sitting ducks for the enemy. We're irrelevant to what God's doing in the world because we're not transformed. We're going to look at Psalm 42 and 43 together. These are short. In some of the Psalms, so you'll see a little difference of opinion on this, but not much. Some of the Psalms have clearly been cut. They've been edited. They've been broken. One Psalm's been broken into two. That's true of Psalm 42 and 43. Um, And probably because they wanted to do it a particular way for the temple worship. Don't know all of this, but Psalm 42 and 43, separate in our English versions, Separate in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew translations that English translations sort of come from, but they're one, they are one song in other Jewish settings and writings. And what they share in common specifically is this. They're not only bookend back to back, but you've got three refrains that occur between those two psalms. Two of them are in Psalm 42. The last is in Psalm 43, and it appears to be the end of Psalm 42. So we'll, we'll cover those together. And as we read the psalm, you need to, to be aware, the psalmist may or may not be a priest, but at least he's been a leader in Israel. And you remember that blessing for a Jew in the days when this, these psalms were being sung, blessing for a Jew was to be in the land of promise, 
to be worshiping with God's covenant community. And it also included things like long life, material blessing, lots of kids. But the person that wrote this, when it was written, he's not in the land of promise and he's not surrounded by God's people. He's surrounded by people who are mocking him and taunting him for his faith in a God they don't believe exists. That could be today, couldn't it? So he's out of the place of blessing, and so it's a lament along that lines. And geographically, you'll see in these verses, he's up north near Mount Hermon, modern-day Lebanon, where the headwaters of the Jordan are formed. That's where he's at geographically. But culturally, he's in the mix of people that are taunting him for his faith. Alan Ross introduces the song this way, yearning in his soul for restoration to communion with the living God in Zion, that would be Jerusalem, and lamenting the fact that his adversaries have prevented him, the psalmist encourages himself as he petitions the Lord to vindicate him and lead him back to the temple where he will find spiritual fulfillment and joy. Okay, so if you've got your Bibles, it's time to get there, or your apps, open those up. The heading uh, to Psalm 42 is to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Uh, this was written to be sung in the temple worship to the choir master. When it says it's a mascal, that means this is a song of instruction. So the psalmist is going to tell him what his experience felt like. This is very much a felt experience. He wants us to feel what he felt. But he's doing so that, so that we learn the lesson he wants to communicate, which comes across in the refrains, as we'll see. Um, the ESV says it's of the sons of Korah, probably better for the sons of Korah. Korah's name may strike a bell for you because Korah was a bad man. In the Exodus account, number 16, Korah was part of a rebellion against God by rebelling against Moses. And you had God judging these groups through fire from heaven on one group, and the earth opened up and swallowed the other group. And most of Kor's family and descendants were killed, but not all. And these are that man's descendants. And they don't look like their forebear, Korah. These are dedicated worshipers in the temple. And it was for them. So it's going to be sung in the temple, and it's for them. So this is verses 1 through 6a. We'll take this in three, these two songs in two, uh, excuse me, three sections. So in this uh, first verse, by the way, if you've seen, you know, scriptures, they'll give a, a scripture and on a poster, you know, or they'll do a scripture with a, a emotive scene online. This is one that gets that kind of play because it's so vivid. He wrote, as a deer pants for flowing streams... So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. 
So you got to love the image of a, a deer sort of stumbling forward because it needs that next drink of water. Or uh, marathon runners, we've got a lot of runners in the church. You know, if you've been running and it's hot weather and you're sweating, all you can think about is that next drink of water. Well, the psalmist is saying, my soul needs a, a drink from God like that staggering deer needs a drink of water. That God himself is all that sustains me and I've been so far out of this place of communion and blessing that I'm staggering forward. I've got to have more of the Lord. I'm thirsty, thirsty, thirsty. I've got to have more of God himself. And let me ask you, just pause for a minute. We always want to bring this home, don't we? What do I pant for? What do I long for? So when the bottom falls out of my life, what do I want? Where is God in the hierarchy of my desires that satisfy my soul? Uh, when everything else has failed, what is it that comes to mind? Remember, I heard a preacher years ago, he said he was embarrassed because he realized ice cream was at the top of his mind. Life's bad, and a scoop of ice cream sounds awfully good right now. Maybe ice cream, I don't know. So the bottom falls out. What am I thinking? What, what will sustain me when life falls apart? When, when I feel like that deer, I'm staggering forward, my energy is gone, I've got nothing left, my, my, my vitality is drained. I need something, what do I need? Where is God in that list? Jesus tells us this, um, John 17, 3, one of my favorite verses as a new Christian, still is today, Remember, Jesus says there that this is eternal life. So when we talk about salvation, we say God gives us eternal life. We're saved, we're saved forever. That's part of that. But really what I want to focus on is when he says this is eternal life, not existence, but qualitatively this is what real life is. And he says real life is knowing God, my Father, and Jesus whom he sent. Real life is to be in living, vital relationship with God himself. That's what Jesus says. So for us, like the psalmist, if the bottom falls out and life qualitatively is knowing God the Father and the Son by God the Spirit, where does that come up in my thinking? Does it come up in my thinking? That like the psalmist, I need more of God himself. Because life is in relationship with God. I need more of God himself. Uh, as the Bible winds down in Revelation 22, God continues to offer himself as life, as the source of life. Revelation 22:17, Let the one who is thirsty, that is soul thirst, that is spiritual thirst. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And that's Christ himself. This comes out of, I think, referenced out of John 7 when Jesus says that he will give a spiritual life that's like a water that springs up from within your very own soul because he's going to give himself by the Holy Spirit. How about this? Jeremiah 2.13. This is a great verse because it shows the contrast. Now, you remember Jeremiah is the prophet that predicts the downfall of Jerusalem and he lives through it. He's an observer. This happens to him. But during his lifetime, he wrote this. My people, this is God speaking through him, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me 
And this is God's description of himself. They've forsaken me the fountain of living waters. I'm like a fountain of living water. You want life? I've got it. And it's overflowing. He says, they've left me the fountain of living waters. They've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now get the picture. So God's a spring and it just, have you guys ever seen a spring coming out of a hill or out of the ground? Fresh, clean water you can just drink right there. That's one. That's God. And then he says, the option you've chosen is you've dug a hole in the ground and you're drawing water out of a hole in the ground. Which would you want? He says, that's what you've done, Israel, by rejecting me. Who or what do we cry out for in the desperation of our soul? What does that look like? Verse 3 says they. You know when you have a conversation with someone and they say they, you always want to qualify. Who is they? They said. Really? They did. Who is they? We know this. Verse 3, they, the psalmist, is among a group that doesn't love him, doesn't care for him, doesn't believe in his God. So verse 3 says, where is your God, they say. That's this mocking accusation to say your God really, he's not around, he must not exist. Verse 9 they're called, they are called the oppression of my enemy. Verse 10 is my adversaries taunt me. Everything about this group is against him. They're opposed to him. And then in verse 2 of Psalm 43, the oppression of the enemy. So what he's got from them, there's no one around him to encourage him. There's no personal encouragement from anyone around him. There's only taunting and mocking. And as he hears those mocking tones, he goes back in his mind to happier days. If you guys, if I'm having a tough time, is there a memory that I go back to because it was so fun or rich or rewarding a time? And I think about it then because that, it buoys me up in that otherwise depressing time of life. Do I have that memory? Because the psalmist has one. He goes back to happier days. You see that in verse 4. This is what he's thinking about. I mean, taunted by all these people, this is what I remember to encourage myself. He says, I used to go with the throng. And that's an interesting word. It's like, uh, it's like a thicket of trees or bushes that are growing really thick together, the word implies. If you've seen a picture of uh, marches or maybe the Washington Mall where there's a big gathering and you look at a picture and it's people as far as you can see and they look like they're shoulder to shoulder you know you could walk on top of them all the way down that's the thought here he says i'm thinking about that great thick crowd i was with when i was leading them in procession to the house of god he says not only was i with them i was leading the throng up mount zion up to the temple with glad shouts and songs of praise a multitude keeping festival now i don't know that we have anything like this really that's quite comparable if you said uh, i don't know christmas it's like christmas times 10 or it's like take the most fun thing you could think of this corporate gathering and it's that and then multiply it well that's what he's saying when i think back to encourage myself i go back in my mind to those days when i was leading the throng and we were headed up to the temple and there was singing and there was praise there were hallelujahs and that's what boys my soul in this moment I want to pause there for a minute to, to notice this. Um, go back to your list. Whatever you said in your own mind. What do I go back to? I, I need encouragement. I'm panting like the deer. Got to have a drink. How does God encourage me? What does that 
look like? How would I go along with the throng? What would that look like for me? Uh, The psalmist's desire to drink deeply of God's refreshing presence was not sitting under a tree with his Torah scroll having his quiet time. It wasn't taking a hike in the mountains where he told his friends he felt close to God in the solitude of nature. I'm quoting some of you, by the way. It wasn't sitting with a friend heart to heart, face to face. His deep desire for God's refreshing presence could only be satisfied meeting with God in the company of the people of God. The psalmist's desire to have his thirsting soul satisfied by God is by joining with other worshiping saints in God's presence. Only in that holy corporate setting would his soul find satisfaction. Now friends, what's the equivalent of that today? That's what we're doing this morning, isn't it? That's the meeting of the church. Now you know, and uh, when I say this, I, am, I have no rose-colored glasses left. They were broken a long time ago. A lot of times, uh, if I think of the church, I might think of people I don't get along with. Uh, I might think of uh, people that have hurt me or you. Uh, people that aren't with us anymore. They left. Maybe they were mad. They were upset. Who knows, right? There's a lot of pain in the church family, is there not? There's a lot of pain. It's a, it's a tough go. Do you think that was any different for him? Do you think among the priests on the temple or the guys, do you think everything was just hunky-dory? Probably not. We, we live in a time where it's easy and it's become popular, maybe less so now, I'm not sure, where people say uh, the Doobie Brothers, those famous theologians, Jesus is just all right with me. Um, yeah, me too. Uh, or uh, Jesus is okay But I'm not religious, which means I don't go to church, which means I live life on my own, which means no one else is good enough for me. Because I'm above that. I'm better than that. But that's not what the psalmist says. So this this is lightning strike for Mike. Guys, I love to meet the Lord every morning with my Bible. I've been doing about 45 years. It's better now than ever. Scripture and prayer every morning. My soul feeds on it. I love it. But for any of us, if you took away the meeting of the saints corporately gathered to worship God, you would take away the soul-satisfying nutrition, vitality, influence that God means us to have. You can't get it by yourself. You know, God promises to meet with the saints where two or three are gathered In a way, he doesn't with us individually. And so the psalmist doesn't say, I'm going to get by myself or I go to nature, I have a heart to heart. He said, what I really need is I got to meet with the church and I got to go with those other saints that are imperfect like I am so that we can worship the Lord together. And at the end of that meeting, you know what I'll do? You guys have been really thirsty or you're really hungry. You satisfy, you slake your thirst, you fill your tummy and you sit back and you say, ah. That's what this is like. That's what he's remembering. If I can only go back to the assembly of the saints worshiping corporately with God, my soul will be okay again. And I wonder how many of us would say that's what I need 
when my soul's in despair. Usually we want to avoid the meeting of the church. We just want everybody to leave us alone. We'll hide our head and we'll come back when we feel better. That's not what he says. It's not what God wants for us. And verse 5, the psalmist's rhetorical question, why should I be downcast, depressed, discouraged when God himself remains my hope? God will rescue me. I will again praise him. I just want to quickly point this out. When you and I have a thought or a feeling, an emotion sort of rises up, uh, those should not be for us unqualified. So... Um, do you notice the psalmist is saying he not only has a vision of what refreshing times in God's presence look like, but he's speaking to himself. He's speaking to his own soul. And a lot of times we make the mistake of assuming anything that comes to my mind or any emotion that rises up is good or it's okay, and it's not. So he's examining that thought, that sense of man, woe is me, but then he's taking it captive because he's telling himself, he's telling his soul the truth. And he's encouraging his soul to feed on the truth. So the question, why is my soul downcast, is confronted with this thought, I'm going to fix my hope on God. God remains the same, and he's my Savior. He'll save me, because that's what he does. So we need to be very careful that we're doing, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 10. There he says we're taking our thoughts captive. We're examining our thoughts. We're examining our emotions. Where are they going to take me? Are they truth? Are they good for my soul or are they poison? So the psalmist is speaking the truth of God's word to his own soul. And we need to do the same thing. Okay, move on to the next set of verses, 6b through 11. So he's talking about now sort of present tense, what, what was going on. He says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you, remember you, God, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why? Are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. So the rhetorical question of verse 5 is stated here in verse 6 as a present reality. This is his felt experience. My soul is cast down. I am discouraged. And that's why I'm bringing up these memories of happier past times. The Psalms give expression to all of our emotions, the, the good ones and the bad ones. And you see that represented here. The psalmist is geographically up uh, north of Israel where the Jordan River's headwaters are. So put this in your mind for just a second. So if you had the spring melt-off, runoff from spring snow melting in the mountains, you know what that looks like if you go to the Rockies, you can see this, but 
the, the springs are flowing and the gullies and the ravines are full of flowing water. And the further down the mountain you get and they consolidate, you've got this rip-roaring, noisy river. And that's where this guy is. And when he tells you what it feels like to be out of this sense of God's blessing, he says, I feel like I'm underwater, like I've fallen into one of those deep ravines, and those noisy waters are rolling over my head, and every time I try and get up, it smashes me back down again. I'm drowning and I can't get out. That's what his depression feels like to him. Guys, William Cooper... As a believer, his recurring nightmares were of being consumed in flames, in fire. What does that feel like to us? If I said visually, vividly, what does my discouragement or my times of depression feel like? What would that look like for us? Verses 8 through 10, the psalmist gives voice to something we all feel. This sounds contradictory, but it's not. Everybody's done this. If you're a believer, You've done this. Verse 7, I feel like I'm drowning. But, verse 8, God's steadfast love is with me night and day. So, hold on, I'm drowning and God's with me? Verse 9 through 10, I feel forgotten by you, Lord, and the enemy continues to taunt me as if you didn't exist. But, verse 11, but Lord, you remain my hope. It's you that will deliver me, my Savior and my God. Does this sound like we're talking out of both sides of our mouth? Are we schizophrenic? The psalmist acknowledges that God is both the one who's allowing the discouragement and the alienation as well as the one who gives him hope in the moment and who will eventually bring him out. We believe in an omnipotent God who sovereignly works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And if you're a Christian, God's singular will is to transform you more fully into the image of Christ. That is His singular will. Whatever else is going on, whatever else He may or may not be doing, He's always doing that. When we suffer, we suffer within the sovereign, benevolent will of our loving Father. When we're taunted and rejected, we're taunted and rejected within the sovereign and benevolent will of our loving Father. And that's why when we feel forgotten by God, we cry out to God as the psalmist did. I feel forgotten by God, I better cry out to God. Think of this. We looked in December last month at Jesus in three different venues, three different images. One of them was as a high priest. And do you remember we said from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is a high priest that's been tempted in all the ways we're tempted. He didn't sin, but because he's been tempted, he knows what it's like. You don't experience anything in your life that Jesus hadn't had, hasn't had some variation of in his. So when we approach God through Christ, we're approaching someone who's experienced our kinds of temptations to discouragement. Think of Christ on the cross, Right? It sounds a lot like Psalm 42. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the why question again, isn't it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus knows some things, doesn't he? He knows that he is suffering on the cross by the Father's will to cover your sins and mine. He knows why he's there. 
And he also knows that the Father, by his own power, has promised to raise him gloriously from the dead when his suffering is over. He knows all of this. He knows all his suffering is by the Father's good pleasure, and he still says, why? And and what's he do before he dies with his last breath? He commits his soul to his Father. It's the same thing. So no matter how dark, how desperate, how, how low we go, when we come to the Father through Christ, we're talking to someone who knows what it is we're facing. He's faced our challenges and then some. And that's an understatement. Job said it this way, Though he slay me, if God ends my life, though God slays me, yet I will trust him. And this is, you know, I was thinking about this this morning. John 6, do you remember? I love the passage. It's where a lot of us go sometimes, dynamically at least. Do you remember Jesus fed the 5,000? They follow him. He tells them this wild thing. You got to eat my flesh. You got to drink my blood. And what do they do? They all go away. And he turns to his disciples and he says, do you guys want to check out also? But do you remember what Peter says? Peter says, Lord, we're in a fix. We don't understand what you're saying. We do not get it. Why did you talk to them that way? You lost your crowd. But Peter says this, uh, where would we go? To whom would we go? You have words of eternal life. You're it. So we don't understand what you're doing or saying, but we know who you are. And so we're stuck. And that's where we want to be. We want to be stuck like that. God's allowing something in my life. I don't like it and I don't want it. And I go to God and I say, Lord, I don't like this and I don't want it. But there are things that I know are true. You're God. You're my Father. Jesus is my Savior. Your Spirit's given. I can still say why. God may not tell me in the moment. But I'm going to the source of my comfort because as the psalmist continues to say, because you're still my God and I know you're my Savior. That's where you land. Verse 11, hope in God, for I shall again praise in my salvation and my God. Uh, look at verse, uh, verse. look at uh, Psalm 43. There, go right on down. Uh, he says this, Vindicate me, O God, defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful, unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling. The holy hill is Zion. The dwelling is the temple. It's the same thought, same imagery. He says, then I'll go to the altar of God, the altar where sacrifice and worship takes place, to God my exceeding joy, and will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. And he concludes on that same refrain, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. So verses 1 through 3 is that prayer, Vindicate me, look at my situation, bring judgment, Lord, get me out of this place. Send, send for me. Now I love this, send out the light. Do you remember the old hotel, motel? commercial we'll leave the light on i don't even remember who it is okay thank you (laughs) 
But, but uh, do you get, if I'm, if I'm lost in the woods at night, and uh, matter of fact, there's an element, there's a element of this in the Fellowship of the Ring when Frodo and his friends are lost and, and uh, Tom Bombadil has said he'll go before them. Well, there in the night, as the night is coming down and as they're still in this spooky forest, well, the door opens and they see the light. And that's what this is like. The psalmist says, Lord, would you open the door of your house and let that light in there shine out? It'll lead me home. You know, give me that light so I know how to get home. I love that. Verse 4 anticipates the prayer answered. By God's deliverance, I will be back at the temple. I'll worship at God's altar in great joy, and I'll be praising God again in the company of His people, singing songs of joy and gladness. The taunts of the enemy, where is your God, and the psalmist's own questions, why downcast, become the platforms from which the psalmist shouts out his confident assertion that God will save him and the psalmist will praise him. My God and my Savior. In God's wise and loving care, we will experience desperate times. Lonely times, who knows how we will qualify those? Times we have not yet seen. And God remains God and He remains our Savior. William Cooper knew what it was to feel estranged from God even though he was saved. He had these terrible nights of the soul. But listen to the way he closed that song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. The last two stanzas go this way. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Why cast down? My hope remains in God. I will yet praise Him. He is my salvation. Amen. Please rise. The worship team will come up with us. And let's uh, recite, if we've got it, from 1 Peter chapter 1 together with a theme similar to the one we just finished. Read with me, please. Blessed be the God and Father of Christ. This is to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation.